Good morning, I'm Mark Blair. Today we'll be reading from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 18, and it can be found on page 901 in your pew Bible. Again, that's John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what if I told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but with the Father who dwells in me, does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I said to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. now. You look at Haiti and the fact that the gangs completely control the country and there's rape and murder and death every day there. And we look at home, we see troubling things, the parade shooting, 
Uh, Tuesday night, I was blessed to spend the evening with the Lopez family. That was painful and tender and sweet and hard. Then yesterday, I was at her, uh, I was at her home going yesterday. And that was a celebration, but it was a painful celebration to have a young mother taken so early from her family. So there's a lot of questions about what does that really mean? How can we not let our hearts be troubled? It feels challenging, it feels unfair, because there is a staggering amount of trouble in the world. No question, life is scary, it is unpredictable. There's heartache and there's fear. And that's really the backdrop of this chapter. Because there is fear amongst those disciples, because Jesus has just told them some things in chapter 13 that have caused a great deal of fear. He says, I'm going away, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And all of a sudden, in just a few minutes, what they felt was somewhat secure in their minds has completely fallen apart. So, in these moments when his friends misunderstand and don't exactly know what he's talking about, Jesus cares for his fearful friends by giving them some amazing promises. And in caring for them, and as he gives those promises, I believe that that will care for our hearts as well. It's the perfect passage, really, for Lent. Because this is the season that we mourn our sins, that we focus upon the suffering Savior. We pray for the worldly things that keep us away from Jesus will fall and dissolve from our heart, that we would have a focus in upon him. We remember that our Heavenly Father sent Jesus not just to make all things new, but to make all things right. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage, which contains so much hope. We're going to look at the promise of the Father, the path to the Father, and the plan of the Father. Very simple. So let's start off and look at the promise of the Father. So first of all, he starts off with a command. It's a command. It's stated as a command. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Trust in these things. And then he gives us an amazing promise. As I've talked about here in the past, when we preach the commands of God apart from the promises of God, we will only shame people. We have to be very careful that we preach the promises of God with the commands of God because those two have to go hand in hand. There are commands of God all throughout the scripture, but almost every time there is an accompanying promise that comes with it that we need to hold on to. The command is incredibly powerful here. Do not let your heart be troubled. But then it contains one of the most comforting promises in all of scripture. And the promise is this. He says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And where I am going, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. As Jana correctly said, they would have understood exactly what this meant. We don't really grasp, okay, you're going to prepare a place for us. But back then, it was very much very common language. And it was indeed about a wedding ceremony. And two people would fall in love, and they would decide to get married, and the parents would have a little bit of a say in that. And there would be a ceremony. And they would become engaged, 
but they would be recognized as husband and wife even though there was not yet a marriage. There would be, I mean, they, they would, you know, drink this one cup of wine together and the groom would pay some, some amount and it, it would be amazing and it would be a celebration, but it was not the actual wedding. And then after that point, they would separate for one year. The groom-to-be would go away and he would work next to his father's house and build a place where they would live. And during that time, he was completely focused. He had only one goal, and that was to build this home that he knew that he would one day share with his bride-to-be. The bride was doing only one thing. She was focused. She was waiting upon that day in which her groom would come. She was preparing. She was secure because she knew that the groom didn't have eyes for anybody else, but he was working to prepare their home. He was working to prepare a place for her. And then on a date when the, when the bride did not know that it was coming, the groom would gather up the wedding party and in a torch-lit procession would walk to the house of the bride-to-be. And as they were approaching, one of the groom's best friends would shout, the bridegroom is coming. She was ready. She'd been preparing for a year. She was ready for that moment. And she would gather up her friends and her party, and then they would go back in that torchlit procession to the home which that man had been building over the past year. And when they walked in the door, it was a party ready to explode. And then they would begin the marriage week. They would begin the marriage celebration. So when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, they understood what that meant. That's for everybody here. That's a truth for everybody here. Because one day for each of you that love Jesus, every person here who loves Jesus, there will come a day in your life when there will be a shout the bridegroom is coming, and the Lord will release your grip from this world, and he will take you home to the place that he has been preparing for you. That's an incredible promise. It's a beautiful promise. We don't know when that day will be. This week, I thought it was going to be my mother-in-law. I was with her and my wife on Monday night, and we thought, okay, the Lord is loosening her grip on this world, and um, she's not going to be here tomorrow. And then on Tuesday, she suddenly just woke up, and she said, hey, it's happy to be here on Monday. We said, actually, it's Tuesday. You missed Monday. <laughs> um, and she's still right at that point that we don't know, uh, but we know that she's ready, and we know that when that day comes, that her hands will be loosened, that the bridegroom will be ready for her. That's a great promise that we have. That's a promise from God the Father to us. And then there's the path to, 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 to him. So there's this question from Thomas. Lord, we do not know where you're going. We don't, and that, so how, how can we actually know the way? And then Jesus says this amazing truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, but now on you do not know him and have seen him. Excuse me, from you, 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 you have known him and you have seen him. So Jesus says very, very clearly, if I am your life, I am the only one. 
I am the only way. This could not be more personal. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, understandably, this sounds narrow. It, it sounds exclusive. And I hear this argued all the time. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're saying that Jesus is the only way. So what you're really trying to say is there's billions and billions of people that have faith in other things besides Jesus, I mean, somewhere around the world, and you're saying that all of those people are wrong. You're saying that Jesus is the only way. Listen, I, I agree that Jesus is a good man. I agree that he's a great moral teacher. But when you say that he exclusively is the only way to God, I, I just can't accept that. I've heard that all throughout my life. It's a very typical attack on Christianity. Jesus is nothing more than just a good moral teacher. But we also have to understand that if we truly believe that he's, if he's nothing more than just a good moral teacher, then what he would say would actually be a lie because he's claiming exclusively that he is the only way to God. He says that. He says it very clearly. He claims to be God. He claims that he can actually forgive sins. And there are so many other claims which would be inconsistent with a good moral teacher. Jesus makes very clear here in verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus takes away any possibility, in, I mean, in any way that we can say that he's just a good moral teacher. This was taught on by C.S. Lewis years ago on the BBC when he had a show, and he talked about the fact that, listen, if we really look at it, Jesus is either a liar, he's Lord, or he's a lunatic, right? So it's either, hey, these things are absolutely true, and he's absolutely Lord, and we have to bow before him. If these things are not true, they're either knowingly true, which would make him a liar, or they're unknowingly, excuse me, false, which would make him a liar, or they're knowingly false, right? And so if, if, if he knows they're false, that makes him a liar. If he doesn't know they're false, it makes him a lunatic. And so Lewis made very clear that, hey, listen, there's no way to say that Jesus is simply a good moral teacher. And then something that really changed my life was I was at Wheaton College in a class with a man named Dr. Arthur Holmes, who I'm sure the Queens also had for some classes when they were at Wheaton College. And he wrote up on the chalkboard one day, the law of non-contradiction. And what he explained to me was life-changing. He says, he said the two propositions, if they're actually pushing against each other and they're opposite of each other, cannot be true at the same time in the same place. Here, here's what that means. He said, let's say there's two propositions. Let's say that A is, you say that my shirt is black. And B would be, some say that my shirt is white. You have three options. If there's two propositions, which are actually in conflict, you have, th you have three clear possibilities. A could be right and B could be wrong. B could be right and A could be wrong. Or A and B could both be wrong. Logically, they cannot both be right. It's the most foundational law of logic. They cannot both be right. Jesus Christ said, I am the only way to God the Father. I am absolutely the only way to God the Father. So either Jesus Christ is right and the others are wrong, the others might be right and Jesus is wrong, or everybody is wrong. It is a logical fallacy that everybody can be right. So the question is, wait a second, if, if Jesus Christ says that he is the only way, 
then where in the world would he get the right to say that? Okay, if, if we can't agree, logically, there can't be this mountain and God's on top of the mountain and there's all of these multiple paths up the mountain. If that's logically a fallacy, because every one of them says that they are the way up to God, where in the world do we have the right to say that Jesus is the right one? And the answer is actually beautifully simple. It's because of the resurrection. It's because Jesus is the only one of everybody that says they know the path to God. Jesus is the only one who claimed himself to be God. He is the only one who claimed actually forgives sins. He is the only one that gave his life for our sins. And he was the only one who was then resurrected. It makes it completely different. We'll talk a lot more about the resurrection during Lent and obviously Easter. But that's what makes it extremely different. The resurrection, I mean, there is just so much evidence. And you, you know what, you might be a skeptic. You might say, well, I, I, you know, I, just, I just can't believe this. Listen, don't, don't check your brains at the door and just you know, spout off that line about how it just can't be true. Investigate this. Look at this. Because logically, there can only be one way to God the Father. And logically, I believe that after you really examine the evidence, which is overwhelming for Jesus' resurrection, He's the only possibility for the one who absolutely can show us the only way to God the Father. It's always good to put things a little bit more simply. And uh, a lot of times I think children's stories can take very complicated truths and make those complicated truths much more simple and much more basic. I think that C.S. Lewis, once again, has done that because he writes about these things in the Chronicles of Narnia as he speaks about Aslan, this great lion, and these kids who pursue him. And it's just this beautiful story. And Lewis tells this passage that we just read in the silver chair. He takes these truths that we've just talked about, and he puts these truths into a children's story. I'm not going to read you the whole story, but I will read you a section in which it's so clear exactly what is being said. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers. If I run away, it'll be after me in just a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved even if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed and felt like hours. The thirst had become so bad that she almost felt like she would not mind being, beaten, be, being eaten up by this lion if only she could have a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. These were the first words that she had heard. For a second, she, steered, she, she, she just stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said once again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And then, of course, she remembered what had been told to her about animals talking in this other world, and she realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, that time she saw his lips move, and the voice was not like a man's voice. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, and sort of a heavy, golden voice. It, did, it didn't make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather sort of different way. 
Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do this, said Jill. The lion answered her by only a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without even knowing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat little girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor even as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Joe. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill as she came one step even closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen a stern face could ever do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing that she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water into her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water that she had ever tasted. Some of you are dying of thirst. Some of you are dying of thirst in this world. And you're trying to satisfy your thirst with so many different things. We try to satisfy our thirst with money, sex, power, influence, social media likes. The list goes on and on. We try to drink from so many other streams and no other stream satisfies. There's only one stream that can truly quench the thirst we have in life. And that stream is Jesus. Because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and nobody comes to God the Father except through him. Jesus is indeed your only hope. If you see that Jesus is your only hope, here's the good news. Even though we still struggle, we're disobedient, you will be viewed by Jesus as being obedient because God will see you through the life of Jesus who lived perfect obedience and you can come and stand before God the Father only through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. If we believe that, we have the right to take the Lord's Supper. We have the right to participate in this as a family if we understand that Jesus is indeed the only stream. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus makes so clear. I am absolutely the only way, the only life, and the only hope, the true hope that you will have in life will only come through me. Let's go on. The plan of the Father. Verse 8. There's a question here from Philip. Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. 
Jesus said to him, and I think that Jesus at this point, his voice is probably just a little bit, are you kidding me? After all this time, you're still asking this question, but I think there's amazing patience from Jesus. He says, have I been with you so long? You still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does. You just don't get it, Philip. My goodness, you're in the inner circle. You've been with me for all of this time and you still don't get it. You've been around me for so long and you still miss the point. It's powerful, but it's, it's a true reality that it's possible to go through the motions. It's possible to be in church. It's possible to be very faithful in church. It's possible to be in the inner circle of your church, and you still don't get it. You had this man, Philip, who had heard it all. He had been right there, and something still had not clicked. He still did not understand that there is a big difference between informational knowing and personal knowing. You can have informational knowledge and you don't have personal knowledge, but if you have personal knowledge, you do have informational knowledge, but you need to understand who Jesus is and then you need to submit to what you believe and understand. He's making very clear, Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the only one who can possibly forgive sins. You think back upon the story in which there's a man and he's, he can't walk and he can't move and he's got these four amazing friends and they find Jesus and they tear open the hole in the roof and they lower the man down and Jesus says, I tell you, son, your sins are forgiven in Mark chapter two. And the scribes and the Pharisees are there and they're very upset by that because they're thinking nobody can forgive sins except God alone. They're exactly right. Their conclusion was exactly correct. Nobody can, nobody can possibly forgive sins but God alone. And that's when Jesus says, hey, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I want to say to this man, stand up, take your mat, and walk out. Jesus is affirming that he is God. Only God has the power to actually forgive sins. Jesus Christ is God. Philip, understand this. I'm right here. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I am God himself. One of the most important points of theology in all of Scripture. And then I want to add a fourth point. It's just a bonus. Is that all right? Because the plan also includes there is a pledge from the Father. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What a beautiful promise. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. An orphan is one who does not have parents. An orphan doesn't have protection or the assurance of safety. Jesus is saying, this, this isn't you. You have a father. You have a family. You have a home. The best thing that my wife and I have done in our lives is to adopt two amazing little girls. We had three children, um, and we thought, okay, three kids, that seems like enough, I think we're okay. And then the Lord just began to really stir our hearts as far as adoption. 
And we adopted Paige in 2003, and we brought her home, and she was uh, just absolutely amazing. And then we started to think, uh, she's way behind the other kids as far as age, so she's going to be like an only child. That, that wouldn't be good. So we said, she needs to have a sister. So we worked on that, and then we got actually Allie that very next year. So Paige and Allie came into our life, and it's just been the greatest joy. It's taught me more spiritual lessons, just the fact that we love them immediately. Oftentimes you hear, okay, so these aren't your biological children, they're adopted children, so did it take time for you to grow to love them like you love your other children? And the answer is no. No, it was immediate. I mean the exact same feeling as a birth. It was the exact same emotions, the same feeling. It was just absolutely incredible. Everybody here who, who, who I mean, and there's lots of folks here who, who've actually adopted, and I love that. They understand that. It's just that immediately I would give my life for you. My son Mark is now 37 years old. He's married. He's got five kids. He has an amazing, amazing, great wife, Holly. And it's really fun as we meet, yeah, actually he's a family, because you can only join in one of three ways in any family. You can join by blood, you can join by marriage, you can join by also adoption. And it's fun that we have all three in our family. And so, okay, there's Holly, she's in by marriage. There's Paige and Allie, they're in by adoption. There's Mark, Megan, and Sarah, and they're in by blood. You, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you could not be more secure in God's family. Do you understand that? You could not. It would be impossible for you to be any more secure in God's family because you're in by marriage, by blood, and by adoption. All three ways he has grafted you into his family. He's grafted you in by blood. We can enter the holy place as family by his blood. He, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. We can enter by his blood. Ephesians 5 says, we are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ through marriage. This passage talks about the fact that we are the bride of Christ. He goes to prepare a place for us. We are grafted in by marriage. And then we are brought in as adopted children throughout the New Testament Romans 8 talks about the fact that we, we don't have the spirit of orphans anymore. So we, have, we have the spirit of sonship because he will not leave us as orphans. He's adopted us. You could not be more secure in God's family. You're absolutely in by all three means. And the fact that we're a part of God's family, if you love Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, then today we can come to his table. We can come and we can participate in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who those who trust in him. And you might say, yeah, but there's still massive amounts of disobedience in my life. I'm struggling in my life. If you understand that Jesus is your only hope and you lay down your life before him, that means you're a Christian and you have the right to come to, to share in this amazing meal. There will be servers down front, and they would love to share with you the fact that this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you.
Maybe you're struggling this morning and you're thinking, I've got so many things in my life we've talked about. Let not your heart be troubled. My, my heart is troubled this morning. I do have massive issues. and I mean, I've just got things I'm troubled about right now and I feel like I can't leave these things behind. There will be a prayer team right up here on the front pews. And I encourage you, in the midst of communion, come down and have somebody pray with you. Maybe you've gone through life and you've thought, okay, I really haven't lived out that Jesus is the only way. Maybe I've not acted like Jesus is the only stream. Maybe I've spent a lot of my life trying to find all of these different streams in life. And I really haven't actually said, this is the only stream, this is the only way. And maybe today, this is the day that you finally submit and you say, Lord Jesus, you are the only way. You're the only truth, you are the only life. There would be people up here that would love to just pray with you, to talk with you, to process with you. So if that's you, we encourage you. Come down for prayer this morning. We need hope in this world. We need comfort in this world. Our hearts need to be at rest. So I'm going to ask you something. I want to ask you just to close your eyes, and I want to read parts of this passage once again with truths from God. So just close your eyes and listen to these words and let them wash over you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Those are words of comfort and consolation. Trust in God, trust also in me. Those are words of faith. In my Father's house are many rooms. Those are words of ownership. If it were not so, I would not have told you. Those are words of promise. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Those are words of assurance. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Those are words of return. That you may be where I am. Those are words of direction and reunion. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are words of hope and life itself. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are words of confidence and truth. I will not leave you as orphans. Those are words of adoption. I realize you had your eyes closed, so you probably didn't write those things down, but maybe uh, you would want to go over those things again. Um, this week it'll be in our newsletter that comes out, and there's some copies up here that I'll just leave, and if you would like those words, maybe just put that up on your fridge this week, because maybe it is a, a really difficult time, and you're struggling, and your hearts are troubled. But what amazing promises God gives us in the midst of our troubled hearts, in the midst of tragedy in the world, in the midst of tragedy in Kansas City, what an amazing promise that God gives us these things, that God lays out these truths before us, that he will give us life, he will give us hope, he's prepared a place for us, he is God himself, he's the only one who can possibly forgive sin, and he offers that to you today.
What a beautiful promise that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you were sensitive enough that you saw that your disciples were really troubled. They were fearful, and you put their hearts at rest. And you made very clear that even though you were going to go away for a short time, that they did not have to be troubled. They did not have to have fear because of the promises that you laid out. Father, thank you that you have called Jesus to go to prepare a place for us. Right now, he is with the Heavenly Father preparing a place for each person that loves you. And Father, we know that one day there will be that shout, the bridegroom is coming, and you will carry us home to be with you. For some here, that day might be soon. For many here, we pray that day is many, many, many decades away. But Father, it stirs our heart to know that that is a truth and that is a hope that we can hold on to. Father, thank you that we are in your family and we could not be more secure. We're in your family by blood, by marriage, by adoption. We are in all three ways. Help us to hold on to that truth today. To love you more, to submit to you in a way maybe we never have before and to realize that you are the only stream. There is no other stream. And if we look for another stream, we will spiritually die of thirst. So come quench our thirst this day and remind us of you quenching our thirst as we partake of this meal. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.